If you have a Bible with you, would you like to guess where we're going to turn next? Oh. Would you like to turn to uh, the book of 1 Timothy? Oh. And uh, that's in the New Testament, towards the end. Obviously, uh, for those who weren't with us last week, we concluded a series uh, on Mark's Gospel last weekend. And when I preach, I'm going to be looking at 1 Timothy for the next little while. So going to read the first uh, paragraph or so from verse 1 up to verse 7, but we'll focus particularly uh, on the first four verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, of course, don't worry, because uh, all being well, you should be able to follow on the screen or maybe look over someone's shoulder. Um, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. There we have the first few verses in this letter that Paul wrote to his true son. This is a, a letter full of uh, affection and, and warmth. Uh, Paul and Timothy aren't just merely... Uh, colleagues vaguely acquainted with each other. They've been friends and co-workers possibly for as long as 15 years by now. Um, they know each other well and they're walking together, they're carrying together this same love for God, this same concern for the gospel and for his church. And Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him in the middle of what is for Timothy a very challenging time, which we'll look at in a moment. But what comes right out straight away from this letter is Paul's passion, his enthusiasm uh, for two things. Firstly, the glorious gospel of God. And this right at the heart of this chapter, he, just, he mentions it in verse 11, the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. If Paul is passionate about anything, he's passionate about the good news that can only be found in Jesus. It's right at the heart of this chapter. It's, it's the heartbeat of everything that Paul does. It's the ultimate reason why Paul wrote anything to anyone. He is just consumed, he's compelled, he's delighted with and thrilled by this wonderful gospel. He wants others to know it, uh, God's people to live in the joy of it and to receive this wonderful gift of God. That's what he wrote uh, to the Ephesians, the church that Timothy is, is in at this present moment, uh, summing up in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. He just delights there to say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
So he's delighted. It's by grace, this wonderful gift. It's not, it's not from yourselves. It's not what you've had to do. It's not what you've earned. It's not what we've deserved. It's all of grace. It's all of God's wonderful gift of, uh, of forgiveness and eternal life and belonging to him. Um, and it's all by faith. It's not by works. It's not by us ticking all the boxes, submitting to all the rules in such a way as to earn God's favour. It's by simply believing we receive. That's the good news. That's, that's the heartbeat. That's the drumbeat. That's the rhythm uh, that Paul lives with. Grace, faith. This morning, I have brought with me one of these, which is a dolak. It's an Indian drum, fairly simple. It's got two sides. It's got a drum on that side, a skin on that side, and it's got one on that side. And I, I came across this um, with my friend Blessan, meeting a friend of his called Joshua, who could play it amazingly. And we just sat around with a few friends, uh, had a bit of a sing-song. And then Joshua uh, gets this out, and he can play it really well. Um, and suddenly, like the song that we were singing just went up a gear in just vibrancy and joy. And you can, you can hit it really hard, you can hit it really soft. You can play really fast, you can play it quite slow. But it's like there's just two beats. That one. And that one. And it's like Paul's drum beat is grace, faith. And the tempo might increase or the tempo might slow right down. But all the time is grace, faith. Grace, faith. And that's, that's the joy of being a disciple of Jesus. That's the, it's interesting just to have heard these foundational issues as we've been worshipping, and and what Jules shared, and perhaps what Wendy shared as well, that sense of the people of God feeling utterly surrounded and overwhelmed by what's opposing them. Oh, how are we going to get through? How can we possibly overcome in this situation? We're outnumbered, we're outgunned, we're surrounded, we're done for. No, faith, believe, see God. And that's what it means to follow Him, seeing God. And taking steps of faith and also taking steps of grace. Oh, I'm just my father's daughter. What's my identity? Oh, I'm just rubbish. I'm this, I'm that, or the other. No, grace. What is, what is grace reminding us of? We've got a father in heaven. We've been accepted by him. This wonderful gift has come to us by which we can relate with God. So what do we do? What does it mean to be the people of God? It means we're walking to that rhythm. Grace. Oh, wonderful. Faith. It's possible to live walking in the other direction to a different drumbeat. It's, let me get this right, it's by law that maybe one day we'll get saved. And this isn't some free gift, this is your hard graft. So knuckle down. Oh, I suppose I ought to pray. Goodness. Uh, I suppose I ought, I ought to read the Bible. Oh. And, and maybe if I try hard enough, For long enough, I might earn some approval from God. Maybe one day I'll be accepted by Him. Maybe one day I can get rid of that old label that just says, you're nothing, you're just like your dad. No, grace and faith leads us in the opposite direction. It's funny though, that even as believers, we can sometimes start turning around and walking to a different rhythm again. Oh, but I ought to pray. Richard preached, well, it was a great message last week, but he talks about baptism. I suppose I ought to get baptised. I guess I should, really. I have to. Oh, goodness. It's like, no, we get to pray. We get to relate with God. We can be baptised. We can 
celebrate the fact that we're a new creation in Christ. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Oh, isn't it hard work? So Paul's passion is that we know that drumbeat, that we know that rhythm, that we receive it in the first place and then we go on living it. Grace and faith. Grace and faith. And it comes right into the foundation of who we are um, and changes our identity. Not law and works. Grace and faith. That's Paul's passion, the glorious gospel of God. Also in this letter, he shares with us uh, his other passion. Uh, In chapter 3 of this letter and in verse 15, he talks about the, the church of the living God. There's a whole community of people um, following Jesus, uh, a community that is shaped by grace and faith together. And this, this community of people, the church, is to, is to reflect and demonstrate and point to the glory of Jesus and everything he's achieved for us. It goes on to say in that same verse, um, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And is that not going too far? We've been talking about foundational issues. What's the foundation? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the foundation, a church, and the rest of it, that's what gets built on top. Is this kind of spinning it round, almost making the church more significant? Does the church get to decide what the truth is? We can kind of change it and adapt it. We've got the authority to do it. What does it mean for the church to be the pillar and foundation of the truth? Well, have you ever come across or visited Nelson's Common? Yes! There it is, Trafalgar Square, whopping. Um, one massive great pillar. Why, built in the middle of the 1800s, why is it there? To celebrate the works of Nelson, what he accomplished, his victories. If you like, the pillar is holding him up. doesn't make the pillar the most significant thing. It's saying, look at Nelson. Admire what he's done on all of our behalf. Now, I don't know what you think about him. I'm not even sure I know what I think myself. Nevertheless, there is something in London celebrating his work, his accomplishment. And there's something about the pillar which kind of is in keeping with what's being with who's being held up. And it's like the same with the church. It's not to make the church more significant, it's just what's the church to do? Here, to lift up and celebrate and help other people to see the awesome, wonderful works of Christ on all of our behalf. And if you like it in a different way, we could look at the next image. Ah, Will and Kate. That casual photo where someone's just showing off their ring. You can't compete with her. (laughs) That's a whopper. Um, And if you'd like to just see the detail, it's there on uh, uh, the other image. Um, That ring was worn by William's own mum, Lady Diana, uh, in the uh, early 80s. It's not actually unique. Just bought off the shelf. It might set you back a little bit. But if you save up your pennies or your pounds then you, know, you, you could get that too. Um, 300,000, I think. Uh, so what it is, is an absolutely whopping sapphire in the middle of that ring. And everything around it, all the tiny diamonds, 
um, and the white gold. Everything else about that ring is designed to show off the sapphire in the middle. In the same way, the church is to, to set forth and to show off and to point to and to celebrate this priceless, wonderful gospel in Jesus. But it's to be in keeping. You don't want a a ring that's tarnished or one where the diamonds have fallen out or it's got broken somehow. And that's why Paul is passionate about the church as well. Glorious gospel. It's so wonderful. It, 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 it It warrants a really healthy, vibrant, beautiful church to show it off. So that's... Uh, that's Paul's passion. The glorious gospel and the church of the living God. And that passion leads him to write this letter to Timothy, which is both affectionate. Timothy, my dear son, my true child. It's not just some business relationship. There's a deep relationship here. There's a deep friendship. There's a deep respect. A close bond. So it's an affectionate letter. It's also really direct. Paul doesn't take long to cut to the chase. And he gives him a fairly clear twofold instruction. So we've looked at Paul's passion, the gospel and the church. Now we're going to look at his instruction to Timothy, which is in two parts. He instructs him about where to be, firstly, And then secondly, what to do. Let's look at the first part. Where to be. As I urged you, verse 3, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. It's a repeated instruction. It's like I've said this in person, as I urged you before. Now he's saying it again in writing. So what's happened? It's difficult sometimes to always trace out the precise history and every journey and how it all meshed together, but uh, it seems a reasonable suggestion to say this, that Paul and his companions and his mates dropped off Titus in Crete to help appoint lots of elders in lots of churches in Crete, and they were planning to move on to Macedonia, okay, and to help and to support churches there. I thought, I, I know what. How about we stop off somewhere cosmopolitan, somewhere refreshing. Let's go to Ephesus. And Paul had led the church in Ephesus. He'd been there for three years, teaching pretty much every day. And this big, well-taught, multi-site megachurch emerged in one of the biggest cities at that time in the whole world. So perhaps they're just going there for this little refreshing stop-off, connect with a few friends, be with the church, and then move on the next leg of their journey. But rather than arrive and be wonderfully refreshed, they stumble into a dire situation. There is a big problem. The church is in disarray. And Timothy, as one of Paul's most trusted and reliable co-workers is left there to deal with the mess. Hallelujah. Oh, isn't it good to walk with God? Um, But what we also learn by this repeated instruction, well, yeah, same point really, something really, really important is at stake. This wonderful gospel, but the pillar is looking a bit shaky. There's this 
beautiful bride, beautiful church, this beautiful jewel. Well, actually, it's, it's starting to, to, to deteriorate. Needs immediate attention. And what we also learn by that repetition, as I urge you, Timothy is somewhat daunted by the task. Now, he's no weakling, spiritually speaking. He's not just some guy with maybe potential. Let's see how he gets on. Uh, he's, he's not a fresh new recruit. Like I say, he's been with Paul maybe for as long as 15 years. And he, but even he is intimidated by the challenge in Ephesus. And immediately, it's more appealing and more glamorous to be anywhere else. And to move on, that always has that positive ring to it, doesn't it? Moving on, but to stay put. Oh, really? Do I have to? The grass can be greener elsewhere as soon as there's a challenge or discouragement in the here and now. So, well, what do we learn from this first part of the instruction? Because after all, not many of us have been left in charge of leading 10,000 people through a crisis. I mean, show of hands, please. But I'm not expecting that as many of us. Nevertheless, I think we can experience times when quite simply we've just had enough of the responsibility that's right before us in the here and now. There is this desire to move on. Oh, Lord, anywhere but here. And maybe Titus is experiencing that as well. He's gone to Crete. Uh, maybe he's a slightly younger leader. And you read in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul's kind of saying the same thing, maybe a little bit stronger. The reason I left you in Crete was to sort out that, <laughs> that situation. As though Titus is asking the question, why am I here? Why me? Um, and perhaps, well, we don't know, do we? Was Timothy right on the verge of just throwing in the towel and walking out? Maybe not. Was it a case that he was committed to being there, but kind of lost his focus, lost his courage? Um, and so, as it were, he needs this robust encouragement. Could be either. By the way, I should add that staying put isn't always God's will. There are obviously times when he opens a new door and says, there, go into this new thing, into this new situation something different for you. I don't know if you are in year six at school or if you're in year 11 or if you're in year 13. Quite frankly, by now, you're kind of anticipating that moment where you are done. I've been in this school for ages. I want to move on. I can see other people, they've moved on. They're doing the exciting new thing and oh, I just want to get on with that next phase. And in which case, the message is not going to stay put forever, but just be patient because in a little while long, longer, maybe that is into like a job or into further study elsewhere or into a new place, new friends, new, uh, new people, new opportunities, wonderful. Um, that's kind of sometimes what's, what's in the mix. God opening new doors. Nevertheless, if you have any God-given responsibility to lead or care for other people, I think this, this, what this encourages us with is this. Don't be surprised if or when you encounter discouragement which makes you question whether you should be doing it at all. Sometimes that's what we will experience. And so now see that Paul's greeting 
to his true son is not just some flippant, tokenistic gesture. He really means it. I know you're going through it. I know you're not in the, in the easiest of situations, but I know God's called you to this. Therefore, grace, mercy, and peace to you. He's writing on purpose. He's writing to encourage. He's writing to say, don't just move on. Don't just look for the new and easy option. If you just move on, then you could miss out on receiving the grace and mercy and help that will give you courage to persevere in this present challenge or crisis. If you just jump onto something else, you're missing out on the opportunity to experience me answering prayer and being with you in the midst of it. And so perhaps there are some amongst us today just needing that encouragement to persevere in a tricky situation. Who knows at what point God might open a new door and say, there you are, it's something different. But that's not like where we live life, always heading into something new. Often we're living life in the midst of real responsibilities that can sometimes just get us down. Maybe today then, it's just an encouragement to you. Look up faith and grace. Faith and grace. How am I going to get through this? Look at who's surrounding us. I'm being opposed on every front. Ah, but I see God. And I see God right here, right now, in this situation. He is bigger. He's more powerful. He's the one who's surrounding the whole thing. I'm going to trust him right here. I'm going to believe him right now. I'm going to receive from him. I'm going to just learn to persevere. I'm going to learn to trust. Learn to live by faith. Learn to receive by grace. Not just jumping on, moving on, getting restless. So that's the first part of the instruction. What's the second part? Paul talks to him about what he should do. Also in verse 3. Command certain men not to teach false doctrines anymore. That phrase there, false doctrines, the, the, the focus or the essence of that word false is different. There are people, there are men teaching a different message. Teaching other things. Coming up with novelties. In other words, even by this point in history, there was a recognized body of truth. This is the gospel. You can read about it in Mark. You can read about it in the letter to Ephesians. It is the good news. But even at this early point in history, we've already got people who have taken a sidestep and they're teaching something different, something else, other things. Well, how's that happened? What happened? Sometimes what happens is that once Paul has moved on to the next place or the next town, people come in from the side. They've been outside. Um, but there's almost like a bit of a vacuum. So from the outside, there's some guys, they come and infiltrate the church and they start teaching something different. This is what happened uh, in Galatia. We find out about it in the letter that Paul wrote to them, helpfully called Galatians. And in chapter 1, again, he writes in really direct terms. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 6, writing to the church this time, he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Wow, strong words. But something important was at stake. He says later on in verse, verse 3, who's bewitched you? Well, it's like, he doesn't know them by name, but he knows that some people have come in from the outside and they presented a different message. Is that what's happened in Ephesus? Actually, no. And actually what's happened there is even more sobering. See, Paul had predicted the issue. If you were to turn with me to Acts chapter 20, this is after Paul has been in Ephesus for some time, he gives a farewell speech to the elders of the church. Imagine, it's absolutely huge church, so maybe this is a group of hundreds of leaders, and before he goes, uh, he instructs them and he warns them. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So in Ephesus, where Timothy is now serving, the issue was not stranger danger. People from the outside are coming in with a new message, wearing really strange clothes. We can spot them a mile off, but we're still listening to them. That wasn't the situation. The problem in Ephesus was dodgy elders. It's a sobering thought. Um, are we still thinking, well, what's gone on? This is a well-taught church. Paul was there for three years, teaching daily, teaching night and day with tears. How on earth, after all that, after such a mighty, wonderful foundation has been laid, how they drifted away from it? The elders, some of these guys who've been leading and under Paul, how have they gone away and drifted off? Well, maybe some of them thought that Paul, teaching night and day for three years, was a bit dull, a bit repetitive. Grace and faith, grace and faith. Admittedly, he might be talking about from every different passage of the Scripture, a really rich diet, but ultimately he's banging on about the same thing. Grace and faith. We heard that one last week. Um, and so perhaps they began by kind of honouring Paul. Paul who laid the foundation. Paul who really taught us the basics. But they started putting it down. Yeah, well, Paul, he was just really teaching the starting points. If you want to progress, if you want to go further, if you want real spiritual knowledge, come to me, to the after meeting, and I'll let you into a few more secrets. 
I'll, I'll let you into some other insights. Oh, this is interesting. I've never heard this before. Let that be a warning to you. <laughs> not, to, not to go in that direction. But so maybe you just, oh, dull and, dull and repetitive. Kind of craving the new thing. Maybe there was some jealousy. But some of these guys wanted to attract their own following. They wanted to make a name for themselves. So they couldn't just preach the same thing. They couldn't just bang on the same drum. It would have to be something new, something innovative, attention-grabbing. And so, as it's described here, they devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Silly stories. Maybe what happened is they've gone back to the Old Testament, they found these big long list of names, and they kind of just plucked one out and actually have just literally made up a story about them, made up a legend. Rachel and I heard this week from some, uh, from some people who honestly believe that Adam's first wife was called Lilith. You can go and do a Google search right now. But it's just been made up centuries after the scripture was written. But, oh, no, no, Adam's first wife, it's just a silly story. But, oh, that's interesting. I want to find out more. So perhaps that's uh, happened but rather than bring faith in God's work and what God has done on our behalf, and rather than promote grace, it's just bringing about confusion and controversy. We can't really be sure of anything now. What's going on? And it appeals to pride, doesn't it? You are, there's extra knowledge. There's things that Paul never told you about. So come with me. And pride doesn't mix well with grace or faith. It hits on that self-reliance button that probably we all have. So what do we learn from this? Don't just ever move on from the gospel. It's not as though the gospel was just our way in, entry level, 101, uh, from which we then, you know, basically, it's your way in, but you then forget about it, you then move on from it, and you kind of uh, live by a different rhythm or other knowledge. No, the gospel is everything. It's not as though grace and faith were just our entry tickets, but then as soon as we get into the party, we just go back to law and works. Come on, if you try a bit harder, you should be praying more. Uh, when was the last time you read your Bible? You know, all of those things that you just... Oh, that's not how we're to live. We live I, I can read the Bible. I can pray. I can get baptised. What's to stop me? Wonderful. But we can, we can kind of have our heads turned and, oh, it becomes weary, wearisome. And we're feeling like, oh, I should be upping the tempo. Well, sometimes in life the tempo varies. As long as you're going grace and faith... I'm sure the Lord can lead you, sometimes with a massive burst of spiritual zeal. And sometimes, actually, I'm just toughing it out right now. Either way, though, we're called to grace and faith, not to discard the gospel. Um, so what's the greatest danger facing the church today? What do you think the greatest danger is? Is it persecution? Is it 
fundamentalist, radical Islam? Is it being in a society that's just increasingly hostile to us saying or singing or living? Actually, it's just one way. There's one way to God. There's one way to salvation. There's, there is something called truth, which you can build your life on. No, no, no. As soon as you say that, our society goes, that's outrageous. How dare you claim there's only one way? Well, unfortunately, yeah. Anyway, are those things are the greatest danger? No, I think the greatest danger for the church is that from the inside, we decide to move on from the gospel and we forget grace and we forget faith. Now, the greatest, the greatest threat facing Elisha wasn't those people, the armies of Aram gathering around. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? Hide away. The greatest danger is we just forget God. We forget faith. And we forget his wonderful gospel. So there can be subtle voices whispering in our ears, influencing our thoughts. Just, just move on. That was just basic. Forget about it. You would pay me the greatest compliment if you were to come to me and say, Dan, you are always saying the same thing. I hope that to be true. And I hope it to be this gospel of grace. This glorious, that we don't move on from it, we go deeper and into an appreciation of it. And that's what we are living. And I pray that as a people, we are becoming more and more a community of grace. A people that we're shaped by um, this wonderful good news. Why well, I looked at that, that verse in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 for it is by grace you have been saved. Here's a challenge uh, as we come into land. I will, if you're, under, if you're age 11 or younger and you can tell me next week what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says without looking and reading it out I will have, oh yes, some kind of sweet treat. Oh. Parents, I will make sure it's not laced with like thousands of e-numbers. Parents, if you want to embark on, the, well, any of you grown-ups, want to embark on the same challenge, and if you can come to me and say what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, next week, I will smile, give you a thumbs up, well done. Or if, if memorising those 22 words is a little bit tricky for the younger ones in that age spectrum I mentioned, then you can draw a picture to represent Ephesians 2, verse 8 in some way. Maybe of a drum or something else. Maybe of an amazing jewel, amazing ring with a reminder about this is the good news. For it is by grace you've been saved. So on. There we go. But let's... let's Let's see what Paul is passionate about. He's passionate about this gospel and he's passionate about a church that's come to reflect it and live it out, that's, that's living to that drumbeat, that's living to that rhythm. Grace is worth fighting for. It could sound strange to say, command certain men not to teach false doctrines, but hey, something's important. Something important was at stake. There's a time for advising there's a time for assisting. There's a time for just influencing. There's a time for suggesting. And there's a time for saying, stop. That is so dangerous. If a, ch if a church forgets the gospel, what are we? A dying social club. 
But by the grace of God, we're called to be a people lifting him up, lifting up the work of Jesus and all that he's done. Say, look to him. Um, What an awesome God. Amen? Amen. Let's, uh, Let's stand and pray. We'll worship in just a moment.